to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. You may never know you have a blood clot until it's too late or presents itself as something else. State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth has introduced legislation in Springfield that would fund the Illinois Department of Public Health in an effort to provide education and resources on blood clots. Gordon Booth and a family impacted when a loved one died after getting a blood clot were among those attending a news conference this week at the Bleeding and Clotting Disorders Institute in Peoria. We are gathered here today um, to announce the filing Uh, of a really important piece of legislation. That piece of legislation is House Bill 4172. House Bill 4172 creates the Devereaux Hubbard II Blood Clot Prevention and Treatment Act here in the state of Illinois. We filed this legislation on this day in particular, frankly, because of the leadership, the advocacy, and the education uh, that the Hubbard family Uh, primarily Pastor Devereaux Hubbard, First Lady Christy Hubbard, have been diligently leaning into for the past nine years. Uh, Many of you that are within uh, the sound of our ears are painfully aware of the the, the tragic incident uh, that the Hubbard family experienced almost 10 years ago this coming December with the loss of their beloved son uh, to, to a pulmonary embolism. And we know that Um, If it weren't for their leaning into their pain, quite frankly, and pushing forth to make progress for the rest of the community, many of us know uh, stories that uh, people have actually been able to be here today with us because of the advocacy and the education uh, that the Hubbard family have been able to do because of the result of them turning their pain into a purpose. And that purpose primarily has been to prevent families from having to endure what they have had to endure. And so with House Bill 4172, we are looking to do two things specifically. We are looking to add additional resources and revenue specific to the education and awareness um, of pulmonary embolisms, and we want to be able to ensure that folks around the state of Illinois uh, have the ability to provide this education and advocacy at a much higher level. We know that this saves lives, and we want to be able to prevent uh, loss of life wherever we can. Uh, The second leg of this legislation will require the Illinois Department of Public Health to engage in an advisory committee that will continue uh, and go down a path of research and advisory. The advisory committee will also uh, begin to funnel information back to the appropriation side relative to the education and the advocacy. So those two arms will work hand in hand uh, to hopefully continue to uh, prevent the loss of life uh, unnecessarily. We have the, we've been working with the Illinois Department of Public Health. Uh, they are in support of the work that we are looking to do. I believe that uh, no one could speak to this better than the two that we have here today, um, Pastor Hubbard and First Lady Hubbard. As Leader Gordon Booth has already stated, we were thrust into this work after tragically losing our 19-year-old son, who was a generally healthy kid, 
um, who came home from college on Christmas break with flu-like symptoms. Um, unfortunately, we didn't know the signs and symptoms of blood clots. Um, I did what most moms would do when a kid comes home from college um, with flu-like symptoms. I called the emergency room. I asked for suggestions. They generally told me, keep him hydrated. It's flu, it's flu season. It was December. Um, he'll be fine. Unfortunately, it wasn't the flu, and he wasn't fine. Um, he developed a blood clot that moved to his lungs um, and broke off and actually killed him instantly in our arms. Um, and that is what is called a pulmonary embolism. We learned that tragically, um, but since that day, we worked hard to teach others the signs and symptoms so that they would not have to suffer the way our family has suffered. And it's funny to say that we've been blessed, but anytime a person is able to live because of the knowledge that we share, we call that a blessing. Um, so we've been blessed to have several people to say to us, because of the work that you're doing, you're educating people. Um, I got tested. I found out I do have a clot, but now I'm getting treated. Um, and many of those people, and I say it um, with a smile, we were also able to recommend that they call Dr. T at BCDI, and they are um, patients. And many of their families are now patients now because, like us, they also found out that um, clotting was a hereditary thing. Um, in our family, we have factor V Leiden deficiency. Um, which means it's a clotting disorder. So we have to be careful. We have to change the way we travel. We have to change the way we do things. And we've made that commitment, not just so that our lives will never have another blood clot, but so that the people we know, people that we have access to, each of you will know the signs and symptoms. You will be your own healthcare advocate and you will make the choice to live. So that's our commitment. Um, and this opportunity to have this to be um, a legislative act in the state of Illinois, wow, we, we could not, um, man, we could not be more elated because we know our reach is limited just right here to people, our small foundation. But with the support of Leader Gordon Booth, um, IDPH, and the state of Illinois, we're committed to save lives. Um, and I want to turn it over now to BCDI because they are the ones who accepted us into the fold after we found out about our clotting disorder in our family. They taught us, they educated us, they treat both my husband and my other son, they're both um, patients here, and they've really supported our efforts to try to save lives. And we are blessed to have Dr. T and BCDI in this community. Somewhere between half a million and a million people a year are uh, burdened with a deep vein clot or a pulmonary embolism. About 60,000 people a year are burdened with a pulmonary embolism, and tragically, 10 to 20,000 people a year die from a pulmonary embolism, and some, uh, quite a few, uh, tragically, before they even get to hospital care, like uh, the Hubbard's experienced. So the fact that um, we have this opportunity with the leadership of uh, uh, Representative uh, Gordon Booth to uh, uh, even think that uh, a comprehensive integrated effort is going to do something to, to better this is tremendous. It's tremendous. It's an answer to a prayer, to be honest. Uh, BCDI uh, serves about 7,000 people uh, all throughout the downstate area. Uh, uh, most of those people have blood clot issues. And 
to have uh, uh, the government support in a whole new light, mm -hmm. a focus to really address this problem and to do uh, formally what the Hubbards have been doing for the last 10 years in saving lives by helping people recognize the risks, steering them to the right place to get medical attention for this is priceless. So again, thank you, Leader uh, Gordon Booth, and thank you, uh, Christine and Pastor, for uh, including BCDI in, in this project to make uh, the world uh, a better place with less DVT, less pulmonary embolism, and the right treatment and recognition for those individuals. So thank you very much. BCDI provides these services, again, as Dr. Tarantino stated, to over 7,000 individuals, and we're so blessed in this community because outside of Chicago, BCDI happens to be the only facility that provides this level of specialized care for individuals dealing with blood clot disorders. And so, again, if you are in the viewing audience of this broadcast, it is absolutely a blessing to be uh, a resident of this region. Um, so thank you for your leadership. No need to thank me. This is really all because of uh, the Hubbard family. I'm just following their lead. If the blood clot has already moved or traveled to the blood vessels in the lungs, then the symptoms could be much like other symptoms. It could be um, associated with chest pain. So the person could think something's going on with their heart, like a heart attack, for example. It could give them shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, and that could be a lot of things, right? It could be an asthma flare-up. It could be... Um, a respiratory infection, pneumonia, something like that. So it's not uncommon to have uh, chest pain or shortness of breath as the first sign of a pulmonary embolism. But that clot, people have to remember, that clot has traveled from somewhere, and usually it's the veins of the arm or the veins of the leg. So swelling, pain, warmness, fullness, tingling, numbness in the arms or legs could be the first sign of a blood clot, and that has to be addressed right away to prevent uh, a pulmonary embolism from happening. Some people are genetically predisposed to that. So even uh, small uh, additional risks, like some trauma to the leg, or uh, a period of time where a person's off their feet, like after a surgery, or a back injury, or something like that, a long airplane flight or a long train ride can, can put a person at risk for having blood clots in their uh, deep veins of their legs. More Week in Review, coming up. A former Peoria resident who helped make history is once again beneficially recognized in the city. The area of State Street between Adams and Washington downtown has been named Honorary Annie Malone Place. Malone, who spent a number of years in Peoria as a child, grew up to become the first black female millionaire because of her hair care and cosmetics lines and the cosmetology school she founded in St. Louis. Here's Peoria Mayor Rita Ali at a street naming ceremony. Whereas Annie Minerva Turbo Turnbow Malone was born on August 9, 1877 in Metropolis, Illinois. Considered to be one of the first African-American female millionaires, she made her fortune creating a successful business focusing on cosmetics and hair products. And whereas in 1896, the teenage Miss Malone moved to Peoria to live with her sister, Ada Moody. It was here, here in Peoria, where her seeds of greatness flourished. She excelled in chemistry classes while attending Peoria High School. Although health problems forced her to withdraw, 
The determined young Miss Malone was well on her way to establishing her career path. She practiced hairdressing with sisters and cousins. Using her knowledge of chemistry, she started experimenting to develop her own beauty products. And whereas after a brief, brief move to Brooklyn, Illinois, where she finalized her product line, Miss Malone began selling her products door to door, building her empire one household at a time. In 1902, she moved to St. Louis. It was here where she would expand her business into a storefront, broaden her marketing efforts by expanding into advertising, and enhance her sales force. Whereas in 1918, she established the first African-American college in the country designated to cosmetology. She named it Poro College. Poro is a West African term that refers to physical and spiritual healing. The college campus included a manufacturing plant, retail store, cafeteria, residential facilities, a gymnasium, a bakery, and a chapel. This served as a popular community hub for the African-American residents of the area. And whereas she was just as well known for her philanthropy as she was for her business acumen. She was a generous donor to the YMCA, Howard University, College of Medicine, and the St. Louis Orphan's Home. Remember, she was an orphan herself. It was later, that orphan home was later renamed the Annie Malone Children and Family Service Center. A parade in her name and honor is held on May Day every year in St. Louis. And we're going to have one here in Peoria as well. Right. Now, therefore, I, Reed Ali, Mayor of the City of Peoria, Illinois, do hereby acknowledge the career and the legacy of Annie Minerva Turnbull Malone in Peoria, Illinois, this 18th day of October 2023. You're going to hear next from Councilwoman, 1st District Councilwoman Denise Jackson. We have been waiting for this for some time. Uh, my comments will be brief, but I'm just going to say, you know, uh, we continue to watch history unfold here in the city of Peoria. And as a history buff, it never ceases to amaze me about the history that has taken place in the city of Peoria. Uh, and I'm just grateful to people, jewels in our community, like Mr. Agbara Bryson, who continues to work uh, with young people and most importantly for sharing this important story of his relative uh, who once made Peoria her home. So I'm excited. I'm especially excited because as a teacher, as we do research projects and as we celebrate history and particularly black history this year, uh, one of my jobs will be is to have students do research projects on uh, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who lived and, and, and did their work here in Peoria. So Annie Malone uh, will be among those projects that we hope to celebrate as we celebrate Black History Month. So congratulations once again. Thank you, Mr. Bryson, for sharing your family's legacy and history. And, you know, it's not ironic. Uh, we're just down the street from the statue of Richard Pryor, uh, who also was a native of Peoria and lived and did a lot of his work 
uh, here in this community. And when he achieved success, he didn't forget about where he came from. So kudos to Mr. Bryson for sharing this story. And uh, once again, uh, we celebrate uh, the accomplishments of people who once made Peoria their home. Thank you once again. At this time, I'd like to introduce journalist Pam Adams. Here we are dedicating a street named in honor of Annie Malone. And I suppose you've noticed Aunt Jemima is no longer on the pancake box. I don't think this is a coincidence. Aunt Jemima leaves just as Annie Malone reemerges. Now, my theory is all wrapped up in the politics of black hair and black representation, but here's the gist of it. For almost 100 years, Aunt Jemima, or an Aunt Jemima type, has been the most visible image of black womanhood in this country. She was everywhere, in advertising, cookie jars, at the movies, and in the kitchen cabinet on that pancake box. I don't think we can truly understand the impact of an Annie Malone and the women of her era without understanding what they were up against. And they were up against a dominant culture that saw them mainly as Mammy, i.e. Aunt Jemima, loyal, self-sacrificing, happy to serve, or some kind of immoral, scheming Jezebel, or a loud-mouth, angry sapphire. I don't want to ignore what white women were up against, but they had Betty Crocker and Eleanor Roosevelt. In real life, black women always relied on each other. Women like Annie Malone were community builders. They carried the culture forward in families, in churches, in politics, and philanthropy. We saw Annie Malone do all of that. She built a business empire, but not for herself or for her glorification alone. She was a powerful presence in the black women's club movement. She once served as president of the Missouri Federation of Colored Women's Clubs. And I have to believe, though Agbara is going to have to help me confirm, that she knew about and probably donated money to the women in Peoria who were involved in the black women's club movement. Uh, that would be the Colored Women's Aid Club who founded what eventually became Carver Community Center. These women, like Annie Malone, always found a way to confront the damaging stereotypes that are the root of injustice and equality, inequality. And it always involved community building. The model that drove them, lifting as we climb, is still Carver Center's model today. And it's the legacy of everything Annie Malone accomplished. I doubt many black families had an Aunt Jemima cookie jar, but every household I know had a straightening comb. And an auntie or a neighbor who did hair, all the while raising money for the church or the scholarship fund. Removing Aunt Jemima was a long time coming. It happened in dribs and drabs. All the while, Annie Malone's name and her legacy were coming back to mainstream memory. In the 1990s, a woman named Olivia Blackamore, with the help of Linda Sane, 
came here researching Annie Malone for an exhibit she put together at the DuSable Museum in Chicago. St. Louis has always recognized her, as Mayor Rita said, with the annual Annie Malone Parade and the Annie Malone Children and Family Services Center. Linda Nance and others in St. Louis are doing amazing work keeping her legacy alive there. And here in Peoria, her great nephew, Egbar Bryson, lit the, the torch to make her legacy better known in Peoria. And the Peoria Riverfront Museum with Everly Davis has picked it up. And with this street sign, we say once and for all, Goodbye, Aunt Jemima. Welcome back, Annie Malone. You were with us all along. More Week in Review coming up. Winter is not that far away, so efforts throughout the community are going on now to make sure some of the less fortunate can stay warm. The Salvation Army is among those collecting coats for local children. WMBD's Julia Bradley talks about it with the Salvation Army's Kathy Anderson. Can you tell us uh, what's going on now? What, what phase are you at of this, of this program right now? Well, thanks for having us on today. We appreciate that. Uh, we are just now at the phase of collecting coats. Um, we have such a huge need. Last year alone, we gave away 3,000 coats. And we started earlier this year. We started about a month earlier doing the collections just because it got cold early last year and we didn't have the coats collected to give out. So we wanted to make sure that we could have a good stock of coats ready when people come in for Christmas signups. Um, we partner with OSF Healthcare and WEEK TV to make this make this happen. Uh, WEEK is wonderful about doing publicity for us and getting the word out to everyone, and we appreciate that you all are doing the same thing for us. Um, It's great. Um, OSF, they have um, every, virtually every healthcare facility that they have in um, the central Illinois area will have collection boxes. Um, They're not the only ones, though. There will end up being, by the end of the month, about 50 to 60 different locations uh, that you can go to around the community, and that's Pekin, Peoria, East Peoria, Washington, uh, Morton, and you'll see a Coats for Kids collection barrel. And we encourage you, if you've got uh, a gently used coat, uh, you know how kids outgrow their their clothes so often it's rare to see a kid wear a coat for two years in a row. Um, Instead of giving it away or throwing it away, put it in one of those collection barrels because there's so many families who can't afford to buy coats. Um, One thing I want to mention, too, is the sizes that we need the most, that we see the least in those collection bins, are for very small kids, you know, like under a year old. Uh, And, you know, that tends to be when a lot of people have got so many other expenses with diapers and formula that coats may be something that they don't have the extra money to buy. Um, And then for the older kids, uh, the teenagers, um, there's a lot of the, the teenagers who will wear adult coats, smaller adult coats, or even, you know, larger adult sure. coats. And so that's a great need because we don't want the teenagers to go without coats. You know, most of them want to wear shorts until they can't wear shorts anymore, but we want to make sure they've got a coat at their disposal. Um, when their mom tells them, put your coat on, they've got one to put on. So you're looking for coats that are from, like, toddler size all the way up through adult and and sizes that are like up what extra large i'm guessing right right for teens because when when we do uh christmas signups we have um the coats available people can come in and sign up for christmas assistance 
So they will come in and sign up for toys, and they'll come in and sign up for their Christmas food boxes. Well, while they're there, if they come to the in-person sign-ups, we've also got um, all the coats that we have that have been donated available for them to go through and choose the coats for their kids. And we want to make sure that, you know, if mom's coming in and she does have a couple of teenagers, that there's coats that size that they can take home for them. So with the coats, is, is there eligibility for that, or can anyone get the coats? Or Anyone. Okay. Anyone can. You don't have to show any ID. Um, as a matter of fact, we have our coat distribution that goes on in Pekin and Peoria during the Christmas assistance signups. But we also have the coats available in our family services lobby in Peoria and in Pekin at their office anytime during the week, uh, Monday through Friday, um, generally 8.30 till about 3 p.m. If someone doesn't have a coat and they couldn't make it to the signups or they just weren't going to go to the signups, please stop in. And if we have a coat in your size, you're welcome to take it. And how long will the coats be available? Uh, until they run out, to be honest with you. Um, we are... We are extending how long we're doing the coat collection as well this year. Instead of ending the coat collection in December, we're going to be collecting coats through the end of January. So you will see those barrels out there for an extra month. Um, Some of the thought behind that is kids may get new coats for Christmas, and so now you've got an extra coat, you could perhaps go put it in the barrel. Um, Also, there's all those sales that go on after the holidays, and if people um, want to buy new coats, you can probably get them at half price after the holidays, and we're hoping that some people um, will want to do that. They may feel moved to do that, and so we'll still have those collection barrels out. Um, We'll have people come in literally through the end of winter, you know, asking if we've got coats or hats or gloves or scarves. So we just want to do everything we can uh, to make sure that we've got something available for people when they come in and ask. Now, you touched on uh, the Christmas signups a little bit uh, before, Mm -hmm. but those are actually just in a couple of days. Uh, Well, not actually it's in a week and a half. Don't scare me like that. Well, yes, (laughs) relatively speaking. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Don't scare me. (laughs) I still got another week, please. Sure. Sure. After, (laughs) after Um, Halloween. Yes. November 1st, uh, November 1st and 2nd uh, is when the, um, the Christmas signups begin in Peoria. That will be at our uh, Salvation Army Corps Community Center on Nebraska Avenue. And then Every Thursday, um, November 9th, 16th, 30th, and December 7th, um, we'll also have Christmas application signups at our downtown family services building. Now, I know there um, are some there are some eligibility uh, requirements for that, though, right? Uh, for signing up, right? Yes. For signing up for the toys and for the food, there is. Um, you have to show uh, proof of address, you know, that you have a home or a place of residence where you're staying. And for the kids, you have to show, um, you have to show some kind of an ID uh, or paperwork that shows uh, the ages and number of kids that you have in your household. Right. So then when but are... That doesn't, but that doesn't take away from the coats. They can get right. the coats without showing any of that. Right. The, the Christmas, the Christmas uh, signups then, when, when do they get those items then? Um, so distribution toy shop will be, okay, bear with me for just one minute. Here we go. Our, our toy shop in December is when we do the distribution of the toys and the Christmas food boxes. And toy shop is set up for um, December 19th, 20th, and 21st in Peoria. And in Pekin, it's December 16th. 
Okay. So if families have any questions about the signups or when the giveaways are about the, uh, the coats for kids, uh, who mm-hmm. do they need to contact, Kathy? Okay. So they can contact our family services team, all right, and their number is 309-655-7272. And do you have a website where they could get that information as well? We do. And actually, we have a website where if they can't make it in for the um, in-person signups, we have an online sign-up that's going on from November 7th, pardon me, from November 2nd through December 7th. And that website is www.faangeltree.org. All right. So if you have any questions about uh, the 38th Annual Coats for Kids program or for the Christmas signups with Salvation Army, that's where you go. You got it. All right. Appreciate you getting the word out. Thank you. Kathy, so I think so much. More Week in Review coming up. The Peoria Riverfront Museum is officially 11 years old, and to mark the birthday as of this weekend, three new exhibits have opened. WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio talk with the museum's Renee Kerrigan, Bill Conger, and Mike Rucker. Opening three amazing exhibitions, uh, really uh, of disparate kind of uh, uh, subject matter in one gallery, as a matter of fact. Um, I think we probably spoke a little about the Annie Malone uh, Life and Legacy Exhibition. Yeah, we've talked about Everly that. Everly Davis. Yeah. We are also opening uh, the the Durier, uh, the motor trap, the first. Sure. Well, I'm going to let um, Mike Rucker and, yeah. and, and Renee talk about that, but uh, that's part of what's on tap. And what's the other one? That's the third Nicholas one. Africano, who is a probably the most renowned sculptor, artist from our region, uh, to walk the planet from from the Midwest um, by 1972 was in um, most of the most important museum collections in America, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, MoMA, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Chicago, etc. Before he even finished college, um, wow! Ironically, he never left the Bloomington Normal area where he was uh, enrolled at Illinois State at the time, and he has been there for the past uh, 60 years making work and remaining at the top of the art game. And it, around uh, 2020, just before the pandemic, he and I uh, began chatting, and it's taken us a few years, but we have an exhibition by Nicholas Africano. Oh, nice. And it is... And what uh, is his medium? What does he do? Well, he began in painting, but these works that we're displaying are of their glass, their cast oh, glass bus. I love and, stuff like that. Uh, oh, they are absolutely... Uh, uh, beyond words, uh, the qualities of the light and and the emotional content that he is able to sculpt into these faces, uh, which are really based on his wife. Yeah. So all three of these are kicking off uh, tomorrow. Correct. Renee <laughs> Kerrigan uh, from the Peoria Riverfront Museum. Tell me and then introduce me into this conversation we're going to have about the Durier, but your thoughts on that for a second. Well, we're really excited to open a new exhibition on the Peoria Motor Trap, uh, which... We, what, is, what is that? I don't know what that phrase means. So that's a, a, a gasoline-powered automobile that was built right here in Peoria okay. in 1898 by Charles Durier. And it was called the Motor Trap? A Motor okay. Trap. We'll because, get to that in a minute with yeah. Mike, but go ahead. Um, so this is... We've had the 
the vehicle in the museum since we opened the Peoria Riverfront Museum, but it has never had a full exhibition devoted to it before. Yeah, so I've seen it really a thousand excited. times right down at the bottom of the stairs, right? It's For a, a really important piece, so we're excited yeah. to celebrate it more fully. Uh, Mike Rucker's here. Dan, you and I have never met Mike. There's Mike right oh. there, Danny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike is uh, the guy that brought the Duryea. How many years ago, Mike? What year was it? We uh, first looked at it in February 1988. And uh, decided we wanted to bring it back to Peoria. Where was it? It was in Princeton, New Jersey. It was owned by a fellow named L. Scott Bailey, <clears throat> who was the founder and editor of Automobile Quarterly Magazine. Oh, yeah. A very significant uh, automobile collector. And this was one of his favorites. So he, so con- he owned it personally? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so he contacted <clears throat> a fellow named John Parks here in Peoria, who was one mm-hmm. of the founders of Wheels of Time Museum. Sure. So I came back after looking at it and saying, okay, I think we should do this. It's only $125,000. <laughs> so you pull I, that out of your wallet, Mike? Oh, well, did you pull that out of your wallet? I couldn't quite do that. But, <laughs> but I'm the one who signed on the line saying, yeah, we'll raise this money. And we started off on a very, shall I say, interesting campaign. <laughs> How long did it take to raise the money? About uh, two years. Oh, that's not bad. But, but we got in trouble. What happened? Someone challenged us that it was made not made in Peoria. Oh no! And, and so we had to prove it. So, so how'd you prove it? We had to trace the ownership, which is only four people over the years, but we traced it one to the next and proved it was wow. made here. Then we started it up again, and uh, because of that notoriety, we finished the campaign off very. Were you part of going to get it? Did you go physically yourself to? Oh yeah, I went to see it, but then we had no. But I mean, did we, the day you said, "All right, we got the hundred twenty-five thousand. We've transferred the money. Uh, we want you to give us the title or however that works." Were you part of the whole transfer process or no? Oh, oh yeah, I was involved. That would be beginning. frightening to me. <laughs> In <laughs> fact, I believe Mike drove the car. You oh, drove yeah. the car. Oh, so wait a minute. So the car was working, which is amazes me because where do you find parts for an eighteen ninety eight car? <laughs> you make them. <laughs> you get yeah, you make them up. Really, got to make them. Well, so, yeah. what what is your interest in it, Mike? Why why were you so interested in bringing that car here? I, at the time, I was president of the Arts and Sciences Council at Lakeview Museum. Yeah, and so uh, because of that, they said, "Okay, you're the guy. Go out and look at this car and see if we should bring it back." But to you, were you a car guy at all? Kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and so, does it still run? Oh yeah, Renee. What do you ever drive it around? Uh, I've never driven it myself. I can't say it's been at the museum, uh, at the Peoria Riverfront Museum, since we opened eleven years ago. Tomorrow is our anniversary, oh, and I have to admit, we haven't tried to start it up again uh, in the eleven years that it's been at the museum. So, so this uh, I'm about to swing back to you, Bill, for a second. So sure. all of these th- things, uh, the uh, the car, uh, the gentleman from Bloomington, uh, and his beautiful uh, glass. Do you call them sculptures? They works, are, works, yes, sculptures. There are artworks, sculptures. Yeah, pieces yeah. of art, art, and that is Nicholas Africano. And then, of course, the life and legacy of Annie Malone. Yesterday, right. we dedicated a street to her in town. Uh, right. The whole story of her legacy of be, becoming a billionaire. A billionaire, a black woman, billionaire at the Absolutely. time that she lived is almost hard to put your brain yeah. on. Uh, Mike, it's really nice to meet you, sir. I've never met you before. Dan and I appreciate you coming in. Uh, thanks for saving the Durier. Makes a, it's a big story, man. It's a big thing. Well, uh, people are always asking if this is America's first automobile, first gas-powered automobile, and it, it actually was number two. But the fellow who built the first one uh, did not build others. He didn't sell it, didn't market it. 
But the Duryea brothers started America's first automobile manufacturing company, and that's their real fame. Their vehicles were marvelous. In fact, Henry Ford said that the the Duryea automobile is a masterpiece. It's done more to start the American automobile industry than any other. Think about that. And so, uh, and these were two farm boys from right outside of Peoria that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that invented these yeah, vehicles. Yeah, just a couple of guys trying you know. to tinker around. So, so the machine, the vehicle is a beautiful machine, and it's been really, really nicely restored by the previous owner, L. Scott Bailey. And so we're just proud to have it here. And John Morris, uh, the museum, says it's the museum's most important historic artifact. Well, so, and we honor you, sir, for all the work you did those years ago for getting it here. So thank, thank you for you. doing that. Go see Mike and Renee and Bill this weekend uh, and throughout the weeks ahead. How long will the display uh, this is show go? Well, the the Duryea uh, exhibit will be, right. yeah, it's very long term. Nicholas Africano and uh, Annie Malone will go throughout the year. Beautiful. PeoriaRiverfrontMuseum.org. Anything to add, Renee? Did we miss anything? The RSK? <laughs> oh, just that there's always something to learn at the museum, whether you like art. This is a great example, whether you are motivated to learn about art, history, yeah, uh, business. culture, business. Yeah, yeah. We have something for everyone, yeah. so we hope to see you soon. It's great to see all three of you. Bill Conger, Renee Kerrigan, and Mike Rucker from the Peoria Riverfront Museum. For more information on those and the other exhibitions and other information about the Peoria Riverfront Museum, you can go to their website, peoriariverfrontmuseum.org. All one word. Again, that's peoriariverfrontmuseum.org. Speaking of websites, we brought to you earlier the street naming ceremony for Annie Malone in Peoria from a few days ago. You can see video of the entire street naming ceremony at WMBD's Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash 1470WMBD. Or you can go to WMBDRadio.com where you can see the ceremony and read more about Annie Malone and about the Annie Malone exhibit also at the Peoria Riverfront Museum. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications Station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at WMBDRadio.com. You can also find the Week in Review podcast at WMBDRadio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.